rejuvenating media day by day. This is Salaam Media. Firstly, how can one identify and respond to conspiracy theories? You have co-authored the Conspiracy Theory Handbook with Professor John Cook, who is a fellow panelist, in fact, um, in which you outline the seven traits on cons- uh, conspiratorial thinking, um, Professor Lewandowski. Yeah, that's a very good question, of course, because one of the things we have to start out with is to recognize that true conspiracies exist. And so we, we're, we're in this sort of position where we have to make sure that when we're talking about a conspiracy theory, that we are talking about something that is unlikely to be true. And the approach that, that John and I and other colleagues have taken is to analyze the cognition of people who are believing in conspiracy theories and how they talk about the world and how they spread their conspiracy theories. And when you do that, then you find out that their cognition and their rhetoric is actually quite different from that of uh, standard evidence-based thinking. And as you said, there there are seven of these markers. I'll just go through, you know, one or two of them. To me, the the most most interesting marker is the incoherence that is inherent in a conspiracy theory. Most conspiracy theories are not coherent. They contain internal contradictions. So for example, um, we've, we've recently had conspiracy theories about COVID where the same person will argue uh, within minutes of being interviewed in the same interview on the one hand, oh, you know, the COVID virus has been with us since we since we were children because we got it through vaccinations when we were kids. Um, but three minutes later in the same interview, they'll say, oh, no, 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 that's a new chemical weapon or biological weapon that came out of a laboratory in China. Well, it's either one or the other, but not both. And in the event, it actually is neither in this particular case. But so we have this incoherence, and the moment somebody is incoherent, you can basically already say, "Well, there's something wrong here," and and that's just one example of um, how you can detect flawed reasoning that is indicative of somebody holding beliefs that are probably not going to be aligned with reality, and that's a starting point. Mm-hmm. And of course, misinformation is also one of the other problems, which perhaps I would understand feed conspiracy theories. And um, so, Professor John Cook, I want you to um, just uh, analyze that point there. Is there any relation between misinformation and conspiracy theories? Yeah, so one way to look at it, which I find is a very fruitful approach, is uh, looking at the techniques, the rhetorical techniques, the uh, logical fallacies that you find in misinformation. And when you look at it that way, we see a a range of telltale um, techniques in misinformation, fake experts, um, cherry picking, and conspiracy theories is one one of those techniques that we find within um, misinformation and science denial in general. So I would characterize the relationship between misinformation and conspiracy theories is that conspiracy theories is one subset of, of misinformation more broadly. Uh, And that also means that the the techniques, the approaches that we've developed in response to misinformation uh, also can apply as as one approach to responding to conspiracy theories. 
which is building people's resilience and uh, inoculating people by uh, explaining to them the ways, the techniques or the traits of conspiratorial thinking that can lead people to be misled. Mm. And just exactly about um, trying to get people to be resilient against conspiracy theories. Um, there's a question again for you, Professor Lewandowski. Um, the question is, what makes people believe in conspiracy theories and ignore the scientific fact? In fact, much of the debunking handbook which you've written focuses on backfire effects, so-called backfire effects, whereby telling people that they are wrong often reinforces their prior beliefs rather than weakening them, correct? Uh, yes. Now, let me, there's actually two questions in there. Let me, let me take, them, take them up in turn. The first question is, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? And we have a pretty good answer to that based on a lot of research. And basically what happens is that some people resort to conspiracy theories uh, whenever they feel that they have lost control or that they're, they're threatened by events in, in their lives. And that is why any frightening event from 9-11 to mass shootings in the U.S., are invariably accompanied by conspiracy theories. Anything unexpected, that is a huge big deal. Um, people are reluctant to accept a mundane explanation. They want something that, that is big and evil to explain these terrible things. So, for example, when Princess Diana died in a car crash, uh, in Paris some time ago. I mean, that was sort of a very mundane thing. You know, it was just some drunk who, who killed her in a car crash. Um, but then a lot of people started believing in conspiracy theories because they felt that this major massive event, um, you know, taking the life of this beautiful woman must have a big explanation. And so whenever you have an event that is big, that is threatening people's sense of control, that makes them feel that, you know, they, they're scared, that's when they will start to, to uh, believe in conspiracy theories. And so the question then is, what do you do? How do you talk to people like that? Now, you're absolutely right that sometimes under certain conditions, there are these backfire effects. That means if you try to talk somebody out of an opinion they hold, they actually become more entrenched. However, and this is a very important point to make, backfire effects are far less common, I think, than we first thought about 10 years ago when we started out doing this research. Um, initially, our concern much broader that by you know, simply trying to debunk something that occasionally you might make the myth so familiar that people believe it more than before. Well, fortunately, it turns out that that, that, that was a little, we were too concerned about that. And what we now know is that if you do get a backfire effect, it probably is only in, in very specific situations where the person who is, who you're trying to talk to is extremely committed to a belief and they consider that belief to be part of their identity. So with conspiracy theorists, there is some evidence that with hardcore believers in conspiracy theories, you may in fact have very little success in trying to debunk the theory. Um, however, 
if you're talking about people who've just kind of heard of a conspiracy or who are kind of sort of, you know, they're just mentioning it because it kind of sounds plausible with, with those more mainstream people, you can actually achieve a change in belief if you uh, debunk a conspiracy theory. Certainly there's a lot of evidence now to suggest that. So you don't, always get a backfire effect. And I think that's very important to, to drive that home. This is John Cook. A question that then arises is, how likely is it that um, any one of these conspiracy theories could actually be true? Yeah, I mean, that's a really important question. And, and it's the reason why in the conspiracy theory handbook that we started by stressing that real conspiracies do exist. So we do need to be able to have the ability to distinguish between a baseless conspiracy theory and real conspiracies. Uh, and so we provide strategies to help people with that. Um, looking for the red flags of a baseless conspiracy theory uh, in contrast to what an actual conspiracy, real conspiracy might look like. Uh, and some of those traits or some of the contrast between the two is that the, the way that real conspiracies have been uncovered um, were done through conventional means, people showing healthy skepticism and being responsive to evidence. But if you um, encounter someone who's prom promoting a conspiracy theory where they're showing um, uh, nihilistic um, skepticism, like they just an overwhelming skepticism of any uh, data or information, and they're unresponsive or immune to evidence, uh, if they reinterpret random events um, as being part of this broader pattern, those are those red flags uh, of of a potential baseless conspiracy and can help you to um, to, to spot um, what, what is more likely to be a baseless conspiracy theory. And let me give you a quick example. And I'm going to kind of fact check Sander for briefly um, in a very gentle way. You mentioned how academics don't always uh, uh, aren't the target of a conspiracy theory. Yeah, we can't think that's uh, having, having thought about it now, I think we've all been the target of conspiracy theories. So yeah, go ahead, John. Debunk, do debunk that statement. So I, I'm only bringing this not to, not to Pink Sander, but more to try to illustrate my point. Um, a few years back, uh, Stefan Lewandowski published some research linking um, climate denial with conspiratorial thinking. And the response to this research from climate deniers were to, to um, uh, publish all these conspiracy theories explaining his research results. And uh, we watched kind of amazed as the conspiracy theories became more and more complex and convoluted and, um, and bigger. They the government was involved, then suddenly I was involved. And, uh, and by the end of it, Steve was like the overlord of the universe pulling the strings of society. <laughs> So um, sometimes academics do get pulled into these conspiracy theories. Oh, you better be careful. What you 